Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. We are going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It's in your pew Bible on page 554. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. Let's hear God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We know it never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes your purposes. We pray that that would be true this morning in our hearts and that all that is said and uh, all that happens inside of us would be for your glory and for our good. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a new year. It may or may not be a new you, but either way, I think it's a pretty good time to open one of the most unique books in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is different. It is distinctive, and it invites us into some of the sort of big picture thinking about our lives and maybe even our deaths that a lot of us do this time of year at the beginning of a new year. And so before we jump in, uh, just a couple notes on what we're dealing with in this book. Ecclesiastes was written by a vastly wealthy, extravagantly wise, and politically powerful person. Uh, Most throughout history have taken this to be Solomon. I think it was probably Solomon. There's some complex arguments uh, for and against his authorship. But the writer uh, calls himself, self-identifies by the Hebrew word kehelet, uh, which means something like the preacher or convener or uh, philosopher or professor. It's kind of a wide range of options. And kehelet comes across sort of spiritually disheveled, okay? Maybe, maybe a little cynical, uh, kind of wild and dangerous, like a dog that was house-trained at, at one point, but has been kind of running wild 
for a few years. That's what the author sounds like. And because of that, Ecclesiastes is a book of intense and often overwhelming realism. It assumes suffering. It assumes a, a, a deep uh, spiritual um, disillusionment, and it assumes death. It is gritty in that way. And more than any other book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes speaks to some of the bewildering cycles in our lives of joy and pain and pleasure and sorrow, and that's especially what we're going to talk about this morning, the seasons of life. J.R. Packer put it this way. This was his favorite book of the Bible. He says that Ecclesiastes teaches that this world's course is enigmatic, that much of what happens is quite inexplicable to us, and that most occurrences under the sun bear no outward signs of a rational, moral God ordering them at all. That's pretty serious. That's some truth serum there. Uh, the author, the preacher, in other words, is asking us to wrestle with the unavoidable and unpleasant aspects of our lives. He's saying that in this life, under the sun is the phrase that he uses, meaning in this world, that there is a time for everything. A time for everything. What does that mean for us? That's what we're going to unpack. We'll do it in, in three sections I believe they're printed in your bulletin. The first is uh, Season of Seasons. That's chapter 3. Um, uh, that's 1 through 8. And then Eat, Drink, and Be Merry. That's 9 through 13. And Forever, Ever. That's 14 to 15. So let's look at the first of these, Season of Seasons. The preacher begins with essentially a poem. I'll read it again. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Okay, so he says that, and then he sort of starts ping-ponging between, I like how one commentator puts it, disquiets and delights. Okay, so a time to be born, that sounds delightful. A, a time to die, that's disquieting. A time to kill, disquieting. A time to heal, delightful. And he goes on and on, back and forth, surveying this, this range of, of human experience, war and peace, weeping and laughing, love and hate. What is he doing? What does all this mean? Uh, it's playing a different note than, than most of what we're used to in the Bible. So I want to unpack this for a second, um, because I think the preacher is teaching us wisdom. Okay, uh, all wisdom is rooted in God, which means the Bible as God's word is the best place to find it. That might sound obvious to us, but really I, I think that is a counterintuitive way to approach the Bible, sometimes even to us. Um, instead, I think we generally approach the Bible not as a book of wisdom, but in, in a couple other ways. <clears throat> and you can see these approaches. Actually, if you just walk into a Barnes & Noble and you walk into the, the Bible section in there, okay? On the one hand, you will find very serious-looking reference Bibles. Chapters, verses, uh, indexes, cross-references, study notes. These Bibles encourage us to approach the Scriptures as a sort of reference book. Uh, a constitution of sorts. It's like a spiritual Ikea manual. In other words, a book of answers. But there's another option. Uh, in Barnes & Noble, this is a newer development, but you will also find Bibles that swing the other way. 
And they are more colorful. They provide space for you to, to journal. They uh, seem to be encouraging you to approach God's word as more personal, maybe more therapeutic, more concerned with perhaps connecting with your innermost feelings and expressing them, uh, sometimes through coloring or art. In other words, it's, it's presenting the Bible as more so a book of questions. Now, um, I'm sure there are times and places for both of those Bibles, but those approaches are a little bit different than, than wisdom and what we're getting at here. Because wisdom acknowledges the questions and the answers. That is to say, the, the purpose of God's Word is not to give you, on the one hand, systematic clarity uh, in the exact thing to do in every situation, though it does some, nor is the purpose of God's Word to um, unlock your innermost feelings, although it does that some. Instead, there's a long definition here. The purpose of the Bible is to tell you the story of redemption from sin that was planned by the Father, executed by the Son, Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, and applied by the Spirit in and through the church so that you can glorify God and enjoy him forever. That definition sounds too good for me to have thought of it, but I don't have a note on where it came from, so I might have thought of it. I'm going to read it to you one more time. The purpose of the Bible is to tell you the story of the redemption from sin that was planned by the Father, executed by Jesus the Son in his life and death and resurrection, and applied by the Spirit in and through the church so that you can glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, this idea is at the heart of Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book. Now, all of the Bible is a wisdom book or a wisdom library, we might say, uh, but Ecclesiastes is in the biblical genre of wisdom literature. And that is why things are often so gray and confusing in this book, and even in the passage that we read. God is, through the preacher, teaching you, giving you the essence of life, explaining to you, for instance, that you will have a, a wedding day, you will have best friends, and sunsets on vacation, and holidays when all, all of your family is together under one roof, and you are so happy, and those will be some of the best days of your life. But also, you will have a day when you bury a loved one, when you lose a job, when you receive a, a terrible uh, medical diagnosis, when you fight with your spouse, and those days will be some of the worst. And these are the seasons of life under the sun. Reminds me of the Shel Silverstein book, The Giving Tree. It's an excellent book. Uh, Ecclesiastes is saying, there will be a day when you feel the strength of your youth and your hopes and goals and dreams will be close enough for you to touch, and there will be a day when you are weak and tired and have not enough energy to dream one dream. So the Bible is a wisdom book. We might also say it is a, a foolishness book. Uh, it's the flip side of wisdom, okay? Foolishness is resistance to the way that God has made things, and certainly there are plenty of examples in the Bible. The fool in Scripture has no sense of place, right? Uh, he has no sense of the created order, no sense of time or season. A fool is inflexible. A fool cannot weep when it is time to weep. A fool cannot rejoice when something happens worth rejoicing over. 
When he is young, he wants to pretend he has the wisdom of old age. When he is old, he wants to pretend he has the vigor of youth. The fool is self-centered. But the wise love God first and, and love others in turn as he is commanded. They have a sense of time and season that helps them notice and care for other people. And this is um, from a commentator named Zach Eswine. He says, relationally unprepared, in other words, relationally foolish, we can believe that if someone experiences one of these disquieting or delightful things, like the things we've read about here, beginning of chapter 3, the reason must arise from something they have personally done to deserve it or bring it on. Either way, we can self-righteously judge the first and secretly covet or envy the second. Sadly, we will not know how to think truly about God or to walk relationally with neighbors or family members if we or they experience times that we have committed our whole lives to avoiding. Consequently, we often hurt those who must walk through what we would prefer not to think about. Isn't that true of us? To be wise, the preacher is arguing, is to recognize that God has given your life and, and the lives of those around you, uh, whether it is not 72 and sunny every day of your life, there's spring and summer in your life, there's fall and winter, and that holds true for your friends, for your family, Likewise, every part of Scripture is not law to brood over, nor is every part of Scripture a personal devotional to journal over, and, and that's actually okay. The diversity of God's Word is a feature and not a bug. So how do we know? Because God tells us. That's our second section here, verses 9 through 13, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay, look at verse 11. How do we know that it's God's will for all of us to experience seasons in life? Because he has made everything beautiful in its time. That's a profound statement of God's providence. For the delights, that is very easy to see, right? Uh, of course, it's beautiful when a baby is born or when we dance and celebrate at a wedding or when we embrace a friend. But what beauty is there in war and death and loss? We'll come back to that question in a moment, but notice again in verses 12 and 13 how the preacher returns to, amidst all of this large kind of philosophical talk, he returns to the dignity of simple pleasures. Everyone, verse 13, should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is an important point, a profound point the preacher is making. He's saying that the battleground for your heart is in what you find pleasure in. It's in what you delight in. One of the great Christian classics, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, it's been called The Saga of the Devil's Minds, and it, and it gets at just this very thing. Here's what Screwtape tells Wormwood, who is a minor demon, about pleasure. And remember, uh, everything in Screwtape Letters is reversed. 
So uh, when he says enemy, he's talking about God. This is a demon speaking. So uh, Screwtape says this, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention and not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. So you see what he's getting at here. Pleasures, including simple ones like food and drink and and work, are built into the fabric. They're built into the, the warp and woof of this world. God means them for good. In our sin, we take them and we twist and distort them. And the preacher says we have to push back against that. We have to take things as God gives them in his word and in his world and refuse to make them something that they are not. We can't act like peace is war or war is peace. We can't feast every day or vacation when it is time to work. Wisdom, in other words, is recognizing the season and squaring up faithfully to what God gives us. This is a profound mystery. The preacher says all these times are rooted in eternity, verse 11 again, and that we cannot find out what God is doing. We cannot fathom his providence. He is the creator. We are the creature. Therefore, we must rest and find joy in creaturely things. He calls us to eat, drink, work, laugh, embrace, break down, build up, speak, love, and even hate, all in their good time. And so in the mystery of God's providence, even the times of disquiet, even the times of pain and and sorrow and confusion are somehow part of the story of redemption from sin that was planned by the Father and executed by the Son and applied by the Spirit. With many ugly threads, God weaves something beautiful. That leads us to our last section said this a moment ago. I'm going to say it again. All of this is rooted in eternity. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, God's purposes and and providence are fixed. That doesn't mean that all of the little things in your life, uh, in their seasons, don't matter. It means the opposite. It means that they fully and ultimately and eternally matter. Everything that happens to you. The preacher understands this, and he is encouraging you to as well. So to try to bring all this together... Uh, Ecclesiastes is begging you to see your life and the seasons in it, good and bad, sunshine and shadow, as part of this bigger story of redemption. It's also arguing that you must. You must. 
You must see your life this way because without that type of vision, that type of wisdom, then life will appear as chaos and death will be overwhelming. There's a writer for a, a sports website um, that I've been keeping up with for a while. He's from Dallas. His name is Jonathan Charks. And he writes about basketball. Um, I, I knew who he was, and I had read some of his stuff on a secular website. And then very unexpectedly, I found out that he was a Christian uh, when a, an interview with him showed up on the Gospel Coalition website. And so in that interview, Charks says that he, he grew up completely unchurched. And about eight or nine years ago, um, he says this. I was at a New Year's Eve rave rolling on ecstasy. I'm at this concert, I'm out of my mind, and when I see the mask from V for Vendetta on the virtual background, everyone's dancing and I'm watching and thinking, oh, they're really worshiping this mask that could be a demon. I just had this sense of, oh my gosh, there are spirits in the world, this is crazy. I freaked out and thought, if there are spirits in the world, there's probably God. And if there's a God, then I better be on his side and I better be a Christian. After that, I called my friend. Uh, This is a friend who had previously shared the gospel with him. I trusted Christ. I joined the church and I started walking with God from there. That's unbelievable. It's one of the most unbelievable conversion stories I've ever heard. He's on ecstasy at a rave. I mean... Uh, who gets converted that way? It's, it's very much like uh, Packer said. He said, this world's course is enigmatic, and much of what happens is quite inexplicable to us. The second part of the quote you'll remember is this. He said, most occurrences under the sun bear no outward sign of a rational moral God ordering them at all. This interview on the Gospel Coalition was was published in June of 2020. A little over two years later, Jonathan Charks died of Ewing sarcoma, which is a a rare bone cancer, and and he left his wife and his two-year-old son behind him. Without wisdom, that story makes no sense at all. It looks like chaos. It looks like tragedy. But with wisdom... Jonathan Chark's story is transformed, and so is yours. Because in the gospel story, death doesn't have the upper hand, and it doesn't have the final word. God set his purposes in eternity past. He numbers our days. He works all things for his own glory, and even death itself for his own purposes. How do we know? How can we trust what's in Ecclesiastes 3, what the preacher is saying? We know because of Jesus. Because when the time came, Jesus squared up to the cross that God called him to. He suffered and died, but God raised him up in glory. And he will do the same for you in due season. Nothing is unordered. Nothing is chaos. Nothing is lost. Nothing is even tragic in the last day because God will set all sufferings and all sorrows to right. He'll do that in your life. Preachers love to end with poems. It's fitting for Ecclesiastes. It's a very poetic book. 
And so, uh, this is from a beautiful hymn by William Cooper. You may know it. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It gets at some of the deep joy and heartache and mystery of the seasons of our lives and and how all of those things are, are anchored in God's good providence, a providence that is so far beyond our understanding. And so I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, It's that good. We'll close with this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that uh, so much of what happens in our world and our lives um, is so hard for us to understand. And I pray that we would take heart from your word here, um, that we would look to you trusting that, that your uh, good purposes are set in eternity. They are fixed. We can trust you um, in the hardest parts of our lives, and we can trust you in our uh, joys and pleasures to glorify you. We pray uh, all of this in the name of the one who secured that for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.